All right, well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Thank you for being here. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14 today. So while you're turning there, how many of you like shows like How It's Made or websites like How Stuff Works, and you just get really interested in kind of the, the inner workings of things? You watch something like that, and you say, all right, that's it. I'm never eating chicken nuggets ever again. Or maybe you're riding to church this morning and you say, you know, I wonder how an internal combustion engine works. You know, there's, there's these things we rely on day in and day out that we don't always understand how they work. Um, and this passage that we're looking at today is going to teach us how grace works. In Titus chapter 2, Paul urges Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he gives some practical commands uh, for Men and women, young and old, for bond servants, nobody's off the hook. He covers um, everybody and tells them what holy living looks like. And uh, if you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to go check it out online. We are in a series going through the book of Titus. This is week three. Um, Pastor Nate did an incredible job unpacking chapters one and half of chapter two. Um, so check that out on our website if you haven't already. Um, and as Pastor Nate showed us last week, uh, these practical commands, they show us how to live holy lives that are shaped by the gospel and consistent with sound doctrine. Verse 10, uh, where Pastor Nate left off last week, says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Paul wants them to see that transformed living makes the gospel attractive. When people see that your life has been shaped and transformed by the gospel, it is attractive. In this section we're going to look at today, it answers the question, why should I and how can I? Maybe you were sitting here last week and you thought, okay, that all sounds good, Pastor Nate, but why should I do that? Or better yet, how could I ever possibly do that? Well, this is what our text is going to cover today. Last week we got the practical application up front, and now this week Paul is saying, hey, this is the theology that this practical application is rooted in. We're going to see in verse 11, he says, for, and so he's, he's grounding uh, what he's about to say uh, in what came before, and he's saying that these doctrinal truths, they are the foundation for everything that he's telling Titus to teach the churches under his care. He's telling him that these truths are the reason for and the foundation of Christian living. So let's go to verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to communicate it today. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into truth this morning, that you would guard us from error, both in what is said and what is heard. Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us, and I pray that uh, this sermon today would cause us all to love you more deeply uh, and commit to follow you more earnestly. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see here is that the grace of God has appeared. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all 
people. Now that word appeared, it tends to have a connotation of something wasn't there and now it is. Something just kind of came out of nowhere, right? In my family, we like to scare each other. Or you startle is probably a better word. But you know, you hear somebody coming and you, you hide and wait and then you jump out and scare them. It's, it's awesome. It's so much fun. Um, you, if you follow me or my wife on social media, you've probably seen a video of that a time or two. Um, it's really fun when your kids start catching on and they start doing it. Um, so that's a lot of fun. And to the person being startled, it's like you came out of nowhere, right? But we all know they were there the whole time. And the grace of God is much like that. In fact, 2 Timothy 1.9 says this, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So the grace of God was given to us in Christ before the ages began, before you were born, before the earth was created, before the universe existed, before time existed, God purposed to give you grace in Christ Jesus. If that doesn't blow your mind, you need to wake up because that is incredible, incredible. The grace of God has appeared. It wasn't plan B. The grace of God, the reason for it is not just because we need it. It's because God purposed, God planned to give us this grace in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean then that it has appeared well, it means that it was made manifest when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was born as a man. He, we call that the incarnation. He was born as a man into time and space. God entered into our world to, to be born among us. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that we deserved. He was buried and he was raised bodily. That's this appearance of grace through the life and work of Christ. Grace is not just a concept this morning. Grace is a person, namely Jesus Christ. So when we talk about grace, know that we are talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus, he was not a created being. He didn't suddenly appear out of nowhere or come into existence. No, he has existed with the Father from eternity past. But in his incarnation, he split human history wide open. He made manifest the grace of God, which God had promised his people throughout the ages and he had purposed before the ages began. Secondly, we see the grace of God brings salvation for all people. When grace appeared, it brought salvation. Salvation was brought to you. That word brought is significant. Why? Because you didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It was brought to you freely as a gift. And this text says, it was brought to all people. Now, we know there from the rest of scripture, this is not saying the, the heresy of universalism that all will be saved no matter what. No, we know that grace is only in Christ Jesus. And apart from Jesus, there is no grace and there is no salvation. What this saying is that Grace has appeared or been made manifest in Christ Jesus, bringing salvation to all people that would believe in and follow Jesus. Amen? And what a glorious truth this was for the original audience. You remember uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Nate told us from chapter one, where the Apostle Paul basically just goes on and on about how terrible the people in Crete were, Right? So he's saying, this grace has appeared to all people, even you despicable Cretans. 
Even you in little old Gloucester, Virginia, the grace of God has appeared. Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29 put it this way. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So this glorious grace given to us in Christ Jesus, it's given to you regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your nationality, regardless of your gender, regardless of your economic status. It's given to all people freely. It's amazing. And this says we are spiritual offspring of Abraham, heirs of the promise. In the old covenant, God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless all the nations of the world through him. And here we are. We are fulfillment of this promise. Thirdly, we see that the grace of God trains us. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So what does it mean that grace trains us? This word translated as training, it has connotations of training and educating a child, right? And how many of you are parents? Okay, so you know pretty well that training a child involves what? Discipline, right? And some of us receive more of that than others. I received a lot of it as a kid. But sometimes we, we tend to think um, of grace in a way that is void of training and void of discipline. It's an aspect that I think we're prone to overlook or not give proper emphasis. We think of grace as being on the opposite end of a spectrum from things like training and discipline uh, or even truth sometimes. And I think when, when we demean the grace of God like that, we, we trivialize it and we're in danger. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, superficial views of the work of Christ produce superficial human lives. So Lord, help us not to view the grace of God superficially, but to view the grace of God in all that it does. It trains us to respond both negatively and positively. Ephesians 4 uses the language of putting off and putting on. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 22, says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see that grace trains us to renounce or put off sin. I know a lot of you have hobbies, okay? And maybe you, maybe you play golf, maybe you play an instrument, whatever. When you wanna take your hobby to the next level, you say, man, I really wanna hone this craft, but you don't know how to get better, what do you do? You hire a coach, you hire a trainer, somebody that can help you get where you wanna go. Now, do you know what their most difficult task is going to be? It's not gonna be to teach you the right way. That's the easy part. Their most difficult task is going to be to break all of your bad habits. You've spent your life doing things improperly and they have to break you of that so that they can teach you the right way. And grace works much like that. Grace trains us to put off sin, to renounce ungodliness. And H.B. Charles defined ungodliness this way. He said, it's to live as if there is no God. So when we live as a slave to our own desires, when we live as though we won't give an account for our actions one day, when we live as though we are the ultimate authority in our lives, 
I don't know about you, but I would make a terrible God. Thank, thank God that I'm not my own God. We don't live as though there is no God. This leads to all sorts of wickedness. All sorts of evil referred to here as worldly passions. And this, this idea goes so far beyond just mere immorality. It's, it's not just about being an immoral person versus a moral person, right? Remember the Pharisees in the Gospels. They were morally upright. They were rule keepers. They kept the law. But what did Jesus do? Jesus rebuked them at every turn. Why? Because in their striving to keep the law and their striving to keep the rules, they rejected Christ. And so church, whether, whether your rebellion against God takes the form of sinful immorality or self-righteous rule keeping, the antidote is the same and the antidote is grace. The antidote is the grace of God. Grace doesn't just rescue us from hell, but it trains us to live in such a way that brings God glory. Romans 6, verses one and two says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So let me put it a different way. Grace doesn't just save you from the consequences of sin. It actually saves you from sin. Huge difference right? We don't continue in our sin because the grace of God creates in us both the ability and the desire to live a godly life. And church, the more you understand and appreciate what the grace of God has done for you and is doing in you, the more you will desire to live a godly life and keep his glory central in your life. Next, we see grace trains us how to live. Grace trains us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. When you say yes to Jesus, you're effectively saying no to all sorts of other things, right? Sort of like when I said yes to my wife, I was effectively saying no to every other woman in the world. I like to think a few of them were disappointed by that. But when you say yes to Jesus, you're saying no to sin. You're saying no to ungodliness. You're saying no to these worldly passions. Verse 12 tells us that grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice there's three aspects of behavior being addressed here. There's inward, outward, and upward, or Godward if you prefer. First, inward, to live self-controlled or soberly, as the New King James puts it. This speaks to our inward behavior. This speaks to cultivating uh, the fruit of the spirit of self-control in our lives. This means we say no to lust. If you were here last week, Pastor Nate talked about sexual purity, about fleeing from pornography, about fleeing from fornication. We say no to that. It's about saying no to our vices, whatever they may be. Maybe it's substance abuse for you. Maybe it's attention. Whatever your vice is, we say no to that. We say no to our besetting sins and we control our actions and our thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. Secondly, uh, outward, to live upright. This speaks to the way that we interact with the world around us. As Christians, we don't lie to people. We don't cheat people. We don't steal from people. We're not violent or quarrelsome. We don't gossip about people. 
We're to be known for our honorable conduct around, among those around us. We're to live in such a way that nobody could make a credible accusation against us, right? And then thirdly, we see to live a godly life, to live upward or Godward. And if ungodliness is to live as though there is no God, then to live a godly life speaks to our keeping God in his glory central in our lives. That means we live with a reverent fear of the Lord. We order our lives around him and what his word says. We live in a constant awareness of, of God's presence in our lives and we put his glory central. And apart from the grace of God training us, church, we would never live self-controlled. We would never live upright. We would never live godly. The grace of God is the only thing that enables us and gives us the desire to do this. It's the only thing that makes it possible to do that in this present age. Now, whenever you see words like in this present age in the text, he's not saying, you know, in the first century on the island of Crete. He's saying in this age that we live in where Christ has come but has not yet come again. We're in this time where we await the return of Christ. It's the now and the not yet of the kingdom. So yes, Jesus has, he's come, he's defeated sin, he's defeated death, he's risen from the dead, he's now at the right hand of the Father, he's ruling and reigning until all of his enemies have been made his footstool. His kingdom is here, it's now, it's alive and well in the hearts of his people, right? But there's an aspect of his kingdom that's not yet. He hasn't come back yet. He hasn't physically established it in the earth. And so, we, we have to have this understanding that though the appearance of grace has inaugurated the kingdom that you and I are part of, yes, we still await the fullness of glory that will happen at the return of Christ. And grace trains us to wait. Grace trains us to wait for that. 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace trains us to wait for our blessed hope, which is the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, notice Paul says, great God and Savior. Grammatically here, he's not referring to two different people. He's not saying our great God, the Father, and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. No, he's referring both the phrase God and the phrase Savior to one person. What does that mean? It means it's a direct and and uh, explicit attestation to the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. And church, that is your blessed hope, that Jesus Christ is God and he's coming back in all his glory. This idea of waiting here, it's not sitting idly by, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for something to happen. No, this is an active waiting. This is about eager expectation and it ought to impact every area of our lives. Let me illustrate it to you this way. It is not as though we are a group of soldiers pinned down by the enemy waiting and hoping for rescue. No, we are a group of soldiers in a war that's already been won and we are now returning home. And yes, we may encounter some enemies along the way that have not yet met their fate, but we don't fight, we don't battle from a, a place of defeat. We fight and we battle from a place of victory, church. The training of grace enables us to have hope beyond this life. If the past few years have shown us anything, it's that 
People are tragically prone to fear and anxiety over temporal things, right? And I just wanna say bluntly, that should not be the case for the Christian. And let me be frank with you this morning. I get concerned when Christians are overly concerned about politics, about who's in office, or what's going on in the Middle East. Should we be good citizens and be, have a healthy concern for those things? Absolutely. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But when you allow those things to create fear and anxiety in your heart, or even worse, when you begin to put your hope in those things, it is an indicator that you have lost sight of the eternal hope and the blessed hope that this passage teaches us about today. Our blessed hope, it's not merely that we escape hell and we go to heaven, it's the return of Christ in all his glory. Church, he's coming back and he's gonna judge the living and the dead. He's gonna throw all of his enemies into hell. He's gonna establish his kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, and we're gonna reign with him for eternity in our resurrected bodies. That's amazing. It's the greatest hope we could ever have. Jesus is our blessed hope and grace trains us to wait with eager expectation. Fourthly, we see the grace of God makes us a redeemed and purified people. It says our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself to redeem and to purify us. Now, redemption, I think, sometimes is a concept that we wrongly think we do for ourselves, right? So I'm a fisherman. I love to fish. And more often than I'd care to admit, I say things like, man, I got to get back out there and redeem myself because I didn't do very well. Or we might look at a story uh, or a character like Anakin Skywalker from Star Wars, and we might say, he fell to the dark side, but he redeemed himself in the end. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler, but it's been out for 40 years, so that's on you. But in fact, redemption is not something that we can do for ourselves. Historically, this idea of redemption was to purchase the freedom of a slave, to purchase the freedom of a slave. Does a slave have the power to purchase their own freedom? No, absolutely not. They need someone to redeem them. And in the same way, Jesus has redeemed us. He said it in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life as a ransom payment to purchase your freedom. And what were we redeemed from? Freed from what? Titus 2.14 tells us we were redeemed from all lawlessness. And what is lawlessness? 1 John 3.4 tells us everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So we've been redeemed from sin. We were slaves to sin. We're not only born sinners through Adam, Adam, our federal head, represented us perfectly before God. And when he sinned, he plunged all of humanity into sin with him. And if you think you would have done better, I got bad news for you. He represented us 
perfectly. In the same way, Jesus Christ has now come to represent us perfectly before God, a different kind of perfectly, right? Not perfectly in that it accurately represents the sinful choice that you and I would have made, but perfectly in that he lived a perfect life. He kept the law perfectly. And he represented his righteousness on our behalf before God. And so when Adam fell into sin, we were plunged into sin with him and we went into what Colossians calls the domain of darkness. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So Jesus gave himself as a ransom to redeem us from slavery to sin and bring us into his kingdom. Our freedom was not simply purchased so that we could go and do whatever we want. Our freedom was purchased by Jesus so that we could serve a new master. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus redeemed us for himself, a people of his own possession. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. So we've been freed, yes, but we've been freed so that we can serve another master. Romans 6 puts it this way, starting in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So when God set us free from slavery to sin, he made us slaves of God. And this is not an oppressive slavery. No, we joyfully, willfully, willfully serve our new master because the fruit in Romans 6 is sanctification. And what does that lead to? Eternal life. Look what God said to the nation of Israel uh, in Exodus chapter 19 after saving them from slavery in Egypt. This is after over 400 years of a people being uh, in bondage to the oppression and very cruel slavery in Egypt. He said this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God brought the nation of Israel out of slavery and made them into a treasured possession for himself. This is a, a historical event that points us to a greater reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us spiritually. Amen? And if you've read your Bible you know that Israel didn't keep his commandments and Israel did not keep his covenant. But guess what? Jesus Christ, the true Israel, did. He kept the law perfectly. He kept covenant with his father perfectly on our behalf. And God told Israel that he would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I want you to look at what uh, the apostle Peter said about the church in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sound familiar? 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the same language used in Exodus 19. And I think Paul is intentional to use words like redeemed and purified because these words have huge significance in our Old Testament. And this appearance and working of grace is the fulfillment of the promised new covenant. We're gonna look at um, a section from Jeremiah 31, from Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. These are some prophets that wrote to the Old Testament uh, Israel. Israel screwed everything up, just royally screwed it up. Their nation was divided, they went into captivity, and these prophets are writing to them, telling them of a future hope, a future reality. Hear, hear what they said. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. And lastly, Ezekiel 37, verse 23, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Church, this promised redemption, this promised purification, this is what Jesus gave himself for. It's amazing. We are the recipients of a new and better covenant that the prophets foretold of. And God in Christ, he's redeemed us and he is purifying us. He has made for himself a people, no longer just made up of the nation of Israel, but a people made up from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's one people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Jesus sanctifies and purifies his redeemed people. As Ephesians 5 tells us, starting in verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So your sanctification, your purification, God uh, making you right, it's not, it's not about you. It's not about me. Why? He's presenting us, a people, to himself, a people for his own possession. He's presenting us as a people to and for himself. Grace of God makes us zealous for good works. Verse 14 says, we're a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the natural result 
of being redeemed and purified is that we are zealous or we have a passion for good works. Because grace replaces obligation as the driving force for our works, right? It's not about checking the box that we kept the rules and did the thing. No, it's, it's not about obligation. It's about grace because grace enables us and gives us a desire to live godly. He's written his law on our hearts, right? He's put his spirit in us. And as Ezekiel 36 says, he will cause us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. He works that in us through grace. And what the law failed to do, grace is doing. Grace enables us and gives us the desire to serve our new master joyfully. Why? Because we belong to him. We are his. It gives us a zeal and a passion to do what is right. Our works are the overflow of gratitude and love for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, this is the why and the how behind holy living. We can live holy, gospel-shaped lives because only because the grace of God is working in and through us. We're gonna close this morning. I'm gonna call up the prayer team and the worship team. If you have a prayer need this morning, please don't hesitate uh, to pray with these folks. It's the grace of God that appeared first to save us. If you're here today and you, you can't confidently say you've been saved by the grace of God, I wanna tell you, you can do that today. You can repent of your sin. Make a decision to follow Jesus. Make him the Lord and King of your life. Put off your former life and put on your new life. Grace has appeared and it can save you today. And grace has appeared to train us. It trains us to, to renounce or put off ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And it trains us to wait with eager expectation the appearance of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, in all of his glory. I wanna ask you this morning, how is grace training you? We're not all at the same place in our training. How is grace training you? Where is the grace of God working on you? I also wanna give a caution. If you're coming up with nothing, and you don't see the work of grace in your life, I wanna caution you, if grace isn't training you, grace may not have saved you. but it can today. Grace of God has appeared to redeem us and purify us as his people. You were freed from slavery, slavery to sin and lawlessness so that you could serve a new master in a new covenant relationship. God is purifying you to be part of a people that he has redeemed and is purifying for himself. If you are in Christ, you belong to him. Is there anything better than to say, I belong to the God of all the universe? I'm his, I'm his son, I'm his daughter. It's incredible. And the grace of God has appeared to make us zealous for good works. Your works don't save you, but they are the evidence that grace has saved you and is training you. Let your good works be an overflow of love and gratitude for God. 
And this is the why and the how for how we can live holy lives shaped by the gospel. Because the grace of God works in us, as uh, verse 10 of Titus 2 says, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your grace that we don't deserve, we didn't earn. But your grace appeared in Christ Jesus to save us, to train us. Lord, we thank you that you've redeemed us. You are purifying us. You're training us to renounce sin. You're training us to live a godly life. You're training us to wait with eager expectation the day that you return in all of your glory. God, I pray that as we leave here today, we would live lives that adorn these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.